Hi, welcome back to the resident review. I'm Rosie Tillis, a plastic surgery resident. And I'm Lily Mundy, one of the plastic surgery presidents. Super excited to have Lily with us today again. Um, this is part of our Back to Basics series. So talking about some of the common topics and terminology in plastic surgery. Today we're gonna to talk about breast reconstruction, a little bit about breast cancer, and also a little bit about breast implants, which could also be applicable to breast augmentation. Mm -hmm. Super confusing world, tons of options. All right. Thanks for having me, Rosie. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this with you because this is your jam. I know it's it is my jam. I love talking about breast reconstruction and working with these patients. All right, so there's a lot of choices, and there are a lot of sort of decision points and different factors that play into breast reconstruction, breast cancer. So our goal today is really just to empower everyone with a little bit of um, baseline knowledge, um, to kind of give everyone a starting point, um, to start to understand some of these factors. This in no way is meant to be exhaustive of everything since we could probably just have an entire podcast series dedicated to these topics. Because there's still time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So first let's start about breast cancer. So patients, um, either undergo frequently for breast cancer, either under going to undergo a mastectomy this is where all the breast tissue is being removed or a lumpectomy, which is also called breast conservation therapy. And there have been some studies that have showed that lumpectomy or breast conservation therapy with radiation has equal survival to mastectomy. And so often this is a choice that's given to patients. Um, however, not all patients will qualify for a lumpectomy or breast conservation therapy. So there will be some patients who ultimately have to have a mastectomy. When we think about mastectomies, there are different types, types that involve, um, you know, excision of the pec muscle or the pec fascia, but sort of most commonly when we think about this as plastic surgeons, patients are either going to have a nipple sparing mastectomy or a skin sparing mastectomy. Mm -hmm. And so a nipple sparing mastectomy, as it sounds, you're leaving the nipple and areolar complex, a skin sparing mastectomy, the nipple and areolar complex is being removed. So you kind of ellipse out the nipple areolar complex with the rest of the tissue. Yeah. So often we'll do this through an ellipse, but you could also so simply as just have an incision that goes around the areola. Mm -hmm. Say you're doing a reconstruction with a flop where you're going to bring in a skin paddle, then that could fill in that area. Exactly. Are we, we going to talk about the um, borders of the breast? Oh, sure. Great Go question. This is a great pimp question. Um, and just, just got to memorize it. You just got to do it. Uh, so superiorly, it's the clavicle. Inferiorly, it's the IMF. Laterally, it is the anterior border of serratus. And medially, it's the sternum and the pec fascia on the bottom. Yeah, I've also heard laterally, it's the latissimus muscle. Okay. Similarly. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So patients will often, in addition to having their mastectomy or their lumpectomy, some patients will have what's called a sentinel lymph node biopsy, where um, the breast surgeons have different ways of doing this, but functionally they're trying to identify what is um, the dominant drainage pattern for the breast tissue or the area that the tumor is. And that's the, the node that they'll remove and send to test for cancer. There's some morbidity associated with doing a full axillary dissection. Patients have a much higher risk of you know, ending up with lymphedema of their extremity. So that is one of the goals of the sentinel lymph node is let's just test the, the highest draining node to see what the likelihood is, you know, to see if we find cancer there. 
Um, and some of those patients will then, uh, based on the results of their sentinel node or their mastectomy specimen, um, may be indicated for full axillary node dissection. All right, Rosie, something that um, took me a little while to learn when I was learning was why we use chemotherapy and why we use radiation. Mm -hmm. So chemotherapy is going to help address systemic disease or as radiation is going to help address local disease. So not just in breast cancer, but if you have a patient that has um, unresectable tumor or maybe microscopic disease, sometimes radiation can be used to help reduce the rate of local recurrence. Whereas when patients are on chemotherapy, that is to address systemic recurrence. All right, when we think about radiation, these are often patients who are gonna have larger tumors greater than five centimeters. They're gonna have multiple positive nodes um, or positive margins or T4 disease. Radiation is gonna cause, you know, say a patient has a lumpectomy with radiation, that radiation is gonna cause the remaining tissue to get smaller and tighter. It elevates the IMF, the inframammary fold. It can also lead to increased rates of infection or capsular contracture if the patient had an implant loss of the implant, and then general malposition. Radiation is really challenging and something that we navigate a lot as plastic surgeons. Mm -hmm. We're really mindful of that when we're determining or, or asking the patient to kind of partner with us in determining what's the best option for their reconstruction. Yeah, and often if patients are going to have implant-based reconstruction, this is institutional preference-driven but it's reasonable to have the patient have a tissue expander that gets radiated or to have an implant that gets radiated. If a patient is going to ultimately have a flap reconstruction, then often we would advocate to not radiate the flap and to, to resurface some of the radiated skin and do the flap reconstruction after the radiation. Radiation leads to hypovascularity. It, it narrows vessels and decreases tissue perfusion. It leads to hypoxia, decreased oxygen impacts the ability to fight infection, tissue repair and wound healing. It depletes fibroblasts. It decreases epithelial cell activity and it alters cell signaling. So you get more disorganized collagen. So really just everything in the world that you would want right over your implants. <laughs> yeah. Radiation causes um, a lot of damage to the skin and obviously to the cancer is the point, but it can lead to some, some issues with skin. All right. Rosie. Sometimes people talk about stage reconstruction, delayed, immediate, delayed, immediate. I sometimes don't even know <laughs> if anyone knows what they're talking about. However, let's just try to break down some basic terms that can be used. Yes. So single versus two-staged. If you're doing a single stage reconstruction, or let me say, if you're doing a two-stage reconstruction, often that would imply that you're going to stage that reconstruction with something like a tissue expander. Mm -hmm. Tissue expander, for those who haven't seen one before, is functionally looks similar to an implant, but you can kind of just think of it like a spacer. It helps mm -hmm. create the pocket that you're going to have your implant in. If you had a single-stage reconstruction, then maybe you would be putting either initially your implant or you would be putting in your flap just mm -hmm. in one stage. Also called direct-to-implant reconstruction. Yeah. And so there's stage, and then there's also this like delayed, immediate, immediate delayed. Some of this is in reference to the timing of the mastectomy and the timing of your reconstruction. So a delayed reconstruction would mean that this patient's having their mastectomy, they're closing the mastectomy skin, and that at a later date, you're doing your reconstruction, which could still be a non-staged procedure from your perspective for the reconstruction, it would just be a delayed surgery. Mm -hmm. If you're doing immediate surgery, that often means you're doing something definitive at the time of their mastectomy. And then people have created this term 
that's called delayed immediate, which often refers to a two-stage approach where you're placing a tissue expander at the time of the mastectomy, awaiting to see like if they need radiation, awaiting on what their final reconstructive determinant, and then performing their final reconstruction at a second stage. All right. If you're if you're not confused yet, <laughs> there's a lot more factors to think about. But <laughs> um, talk implants. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about implants. I want to talk a lot about implants, but <laughs> just very briefly, why would you use a tissue expander? So tissue expanders are good um, if you're trying to hold your pocket open. Um, for example, if you have the mastectomy and then you want to come back in later. You want to kind of buy some time, see if you're going to need radiation. Awesome. Yeah. So you could be using a tissue expander because you don't know what that patient's cancer treatment is going to be needed. So Mm -hmm. say they need radiation, you know, this patient wants a flap. You don't want to radiate your flap. You place a tissue expander, await Mm -hmm. final margins. Okay. That could be reasonable. I think other things that the tissue expander does for us is one, it has tabs to suture. So when a patient has a mastectomy, it creates a large defect if you place an implant in there immediately, you don't have quite as much control over where the pocket is. Yeah, it'll slide around. Exactly. So that makes it a little bit more challenging. Not obviously not impossible. It's something that's done through direct implant techniques, but mm-hmm. having the tissue expander does allow you to suture things in place and really define where you want the pocket to be for your breast, um, for your breast reconstruction. Mm-hmm. It also allows you to deflate the tissue expander at the time of the mastectomy. So you're limiting trauma to the mastectomy skin, you're allowing it to heal, and then you can inflate it later. This might allow you to change the size of the patient's breast, either you know larger or smaller mm-hmm. um, based on what they're interested in the reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Direct implant, which we've mentioned, initially placing the the permanent implant at the time of their mastectomy requires one less surgery, but you don't have quite necessarily as much control. It requires really reliable skin flaps. And, you know, it, it requires, I would think in my perspective, a little more experience. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when people are just starting out, unless they have had a lot of experience with direct implant residency, they might be more apt to do, you know, two-staged reconstructions with a tissue expander than an implant. Mm -hmm. All right, Rosie. What are options for autologous reconstruction? So say a patient doesn't want to use an implant or has a history of radiation, has had issues with implants, whatever reason might be, they don't want it. What kind of options do we offer for tissue-based reconstruction? We have so many options, especially now. There's more options, I feel like, every day. Um, But basically, this would be our flap reconstruction um, when you have people say stuff like that. So we, a lot of times will rely on the epigastric vessels. So whether that's the inferiors or the superiors, so, um, if you're going to do a superior epigastric based flap, that would be like a tram. Oh, like a pedicle tram. Yeah. So this is historically before we did a lot of microsurgery, people did a lot of pedicle trams for breast reconstruction. Mm-hmm. All right. More commonly now we do a perforator based version of this mm-hmm. flap. That would be the MS tram or a deep flap or a deep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a deep inferior epigastric perforator flap. The MS tram is similar. Um, this is a muscle sparing tram. This means that you're taking a portion of that rectus muscle as opposed to dissecting through the rectus muscle, dissecting out those perforators, kind of like we talked about in our flap lecture, mm-hmm. talking about the difference between a perforator and a pedicle. But in a deep flap, you're identifying the specific perforators that supply that tissue, dissecting them through the rectus muscles down into the pelvis to the deep inferior epigastric system. In a muscle sparing tram, you're taking a cuff of that rectus muscle with you. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then dissecting out your pedicle. This does require that the patient has adequate abdominal tissue to support this that you can take with you. Yeah. And if a patient has had an abdominoplasty in the past or maybe several rounds of liposuction sometimes, or, you know, certain previous abdominal surgeries that you think have impacted the perforators to that tissue, then they might not be candidates for um, a deep flap reconstruction. Commonly, second line autologous options we have include the PAP flap. This is the profound artery perforator-based flap. Um, the S gap and the I gap were the superior glial and inferior gluteal artery perforator flaps. These were like really common for a little while. We don't do them as frequently now. The PAP flaps have become second line for most people. Although again, this is really um, surgeon specific. There's lateral thigh perforator flaps and then lumbar artery perforator flaps. Again, it all kind of depends on where your patient has tissue. Exactly. And then what your expertise is as a surgeon and what you're comfortable with and feel like you can get consistent results with. Okay. If you are counseling a patient or thinking about the options between implants and autologous, what are some of the factors that, that would influence a patient to go one way or the other? So a lot of patients come in with some um, amount of knowledge, either from researching online or just things that they've heard. Um, on breast reconstruction. And so you want to talk to them about, you know, the fact that implant-based reconstruction, you know, and that you also want to make sure you identify what kind of candidate they're going to be. So if you don't think they're a candidate specifically for, you know, a free flap at that time, then you're not going to counsel them on maybe getting a free flap. But um, if you're going to talk to somebody about implants versus flaps, you talk about the fact that implants require a a prosthetic material to be in their body versus their own tissue and a flap. Um, so I know this like might really resonate for some patients. They really like the idea of being able to use their own tissue mm-hmm. to do the reconstruction. Um, whereas other people, maybe that just isn't as important to them or doesn't resonate. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not as, um, they're sort of okay with having the implant. Um, definitely a good, a value of having implants. This comes off the shelf, right? This mm-hmm. comes out of a box. This didn't require an additional donor site. It doesn't require any other injury or not having surgery to another portion of your body. And so some patients don't um, want to have to go through all the morbidity of having an autologous based reconstruction. Um, definitely when patients have free tissue transfer, autologous reconstruction, often that requires a slightly longer hospital stay. These are not typically same day procedures, although there are some people who are sort of pushing the limits of how long a patient has to stay in the hospital after a deep flap. Um, we are often doing monitoring of this, of these free tissue transfers, um, and, um, in the short term, however, in the long term, if a patient has an implant based reconstruction, then they have to monitor that implant Mm -hmm. for their life, right? Mm -hmm. They are, you know, there's a risk of capsular contracture. There's a risk of infection. Some Mm -hmm. of these things we'll, we'll talk about. And so, um, something that people who choose autologous reconstruction really like is that they've created this lifelong reconstruction that once they're at, you know, a place where they're happy and comfortable with what the reconstruction is, it's not going to require a lot of additional surgery. Mm-hmm. Whereas people who have implants often require additional surgery. Right. So we, we kind of usually phrase that I think is that uh, autologous tissue transfer is basically front, front loading the work. So you're in the hospital for a little bit longer. It's a tougher recovery at first. Um, but later on, it seems like it's a little bit more of a smooth pathway yeah. for most the the common pathway. Yeah. And implant reconstruction doesn't require a patient have additional surgeries in the future, but these are not lifetime devices. And so depending on when that right. person has cancer and their reconstruction could impact things. 
All right. And then the other thing that factors in is sort of the appearance of how things look. Um, you know, the appearance of an implant and an autologous reconstruction could be fairly similar in certain patients. However, with time, the autologous reconstruction is going to age in a more, you know, natural appearance. Um, it's going to, you know, have a degree of ptosis. It might match a native breast a little bit better than an implant-based reconstruction would. Alternatively, alternatively, if your patient is looking for that kind of um, augmented type of look, then sometimes they will want to go for the implants. Yeah. And we definitely see some patients um, who, you know, elect to want to have a reconstruction that's larger than their native breast size. Um, And so that the ability to do that might be influenced by what type of available tissue they had. And Mm -hmm. if they could have an autologous reconstruction that would would create the size that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then we have this sort of hybrid model of reconstruction, which is using a pedicled latissimus muscle. So this is where you're going to take your latissimus from the back. Often this has a skin paddle overlying that muscle. You create a subcutaneous tunnel from the back through to the breast and you tunnel the latissimus muscle with the skin paddle through. This allows in a patient who either had sufficient tissue or didn't want to be large, this might allow you to create the reconstruction in and of itself without Mm -hmm. an additional prosthetic, like an implant. Some people are using fat grafting and a pedicled latissimus to to do breast reconstruction now. Um, However, often and sort of most classically, we are taught that this is sort of your bailout option for breast reconstruction, Mm -hmm. especially in a patient who has had radiation and maybe issues with implant exposure or infection or wound healing. This allows you to resurface some of that skin Mm -hmm. um, and then use an implant-based reconstruction. Mm -hmm. This also allows um, for reconstruction in an area where you might not have access to microsurgical reconstruction for these patients. And then there are some people that are even doing something called a Tdap or a thracodorsal artery perforator flap, which we talked about in our flap lecture. Um, And this is where you have a perforator based flap dissecting your perforators through the latissimus muscle and then using this for part of your reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Rosie, what is the deal with fat grafting? So, Fat grafting can be done, uh, like you said, apparently for like basically the entire reconstruction. Yeah. Um, but it also has a role in kind of correcting defects and augmenting small areas of a reconstruction. So a lot of times we'll um, go back like uh, during our revision, if somebody needs a little bit more superior pole fullness or, um, you know, if they have little abnormalities. Yeah. Like it's kind of like contour. a, like a resurfacing, right? Like yeah. it allows us, if you think of it from an artistic perspective, it's sort of like sculpting, like yeah. it allows us to recontour some areas. And there are people who are doing um, several rounds of fat grafting for breast reconstruction where that becomes the major driver in the breast reconstruction. Mm-hmm. However, that's not necessarily a full mainstream option for everybody right now. Mm-hmm. Cause you do have loss of a good amount of the fat graft. Yeah. So when we do fat grafting for patients or for patients, for people who haven't seen this before, we are performing liposuction of an area in the body. We're taking that fat. There's a couple different methods of um, cleaning or um, filtering that fat. And then we're reinjecting fat in tiny aliquots mm-hmm. um, as graft material. So it's not coming with a blood supply. It's gaining a blood supply from the tissue that surrounds it. So there's sort of a limit to how much you could fat graft at a given time since it needs to revascularize from the surrounding tissue. Awesome. And as Rosie mentioned, we use fat grafting 
um, as an adjunct, or we can use fat grafting as an adjunct for both implant-based and autologous-based reconstruction. All right, Rosie, I think we need to spend a little bit of time just talking about breast implants. There's so many options. Yeah, and, and a lot of what we're going to talk about is we're going to try to highlight where this is applicable for autologous, or I'm sorry, for augment patients as well as for reconstructive patients. Mm -hmm. So when you're thinking about implants, there's just a lot of factors that you're choosing between. First factor is, um, or not maybe not first, but one of the factors is the surface of the implant. So there is something called texturing and there's something called smooth. So the surface of implants are silicone. The, the, the contents could be silicone or saline, which we'll talk about in a minute, but all of these implants are covered with silicone. And that surface either has a textured material or it has a smooth material. The reason why someone might elect to have a textured material on their implant is it's associated with a decreased rate of capsular contracture, capsular contracture being scar tissue that forms around the breast implant. It has less migration and implant rotation, so it allows you and facilitates you to use like a shaped implant. So um, there are implants that are round. And there are implants that create more of that breast tear, tear shape. Okay. Tear so that's a factor that you're going to think about. You can have an anatomic tear shaped implant, or you can have a round implant. And the reason that texturing became popular is because it resulted in less migration and implant rotation. And so, um, therefore it better facilitated using an anatomic shaped implant. Downsides of using textured implants is that you get more rippling and you can have some greater palpability in the implant shell, but the real downside that has come to light in the past several years is the rate of the, or the incidence of BIA ALCL, mm -hmm. which is breast implant associated um, ALCL. And this can result, um, this is a type of cancer that patients mm -hmm. get. It's not a breast parenchymal cancer. It's a type of lymphoma. Um, and because of this, um, there's been implants that have been recalled from the market and there are some implants that are less associated with BIA ALCL that are textured but they're put in really only in the setting of a true informed consent for these patients. They mm -hmm. need to be aware of the monitoring. So most commonly we use smooth implants and smooth implants were in comparison to textured implants. They had less rippling and they have a less palpable shell. However, they do have some more migration or rotation and they can have a higher contractor rate in augmentation patients. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's kind of a lot. Um, we talked a little bit about shape and we talked about the, the surface of the implants. Let's talk a little bit about saline and silicone implants. So as we mentioned, the shell of all of the implants is going to be silicone, but the contents of the implants can either be saline or silicone. So the silicone implants that come pre-filled pre and sealed, they come in specific sizes. So you um, have individual boxes of implants that are labeled based on their volume and all these other factors that we'll talk about. And the reason why patients would pick a silicone implant is they have a more natural feel. And this can be especially um, uh, appreciable in patients who are undergoing reconstruction versus augmentation. The downside of having a silicone implant is that it does require some monitoring. Um, you cannot necessarily determine on physical exam if that implant has ruptured. And so the FDA has had recommendations for MRI and um, imaging to evaluate for rupture. Silicone implants are more expensive than saline implants, and they do require an incision that's at least around four centimeters in order to place that implant. All right, saline implants, in contrast, they have silicone on the outside, 
but these have um, an ability to fill them in the operating room. So you'll fill them with saline based on the size that you're looking for for that patient. These um, can be placed, the, they can be filled either from like a remote port that can be removed or from a port right on the back of the implant that's removed after you fill them to the appropriate level in the OR. They don't require monitoring in the same way that silicone implants do, since if the saline implant ruptures, the patient will literally wake up the next day and the entire implant fluid will have been reabsorbed by their body. So it's very apparent um, that it's ruptured. So that might be a reason why somebody might elect to have a saline implant over a silicone implant. They also adjust to the patient's body temperature quicker. However, they don't have the same, um, they don't feel quite as natural as the silicone implants and they can have some more ruffling or more rippling, I'm sorry. So when we're deciding um, the type of implant or the size of implant we want in the OR, a lot of times we'll use sizers and some surgeons will use saline sizers no matter what type of implant they're using since this allows them to sort of adjust um, down to the you know, degree of fluid that they want um, with only opening one specific implant sizer. Um, whereas other people, if they're going to use a silicone implant will also use silicone sizers. All right, continuing on with implants, this is a lot of <laughs> options. It's incredible that someone, that you can learn all these things, right? And know what to pick. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, the last thing that we'll say about the silicone implants um, in the fill of silicone implants is there's some variability in how cohesive that silicone is. Um, so each of the different implant companies have sort of different names for the different types of silicone implants that they have. Um, the most cohesive implants are often what we use for reconstruction patients since they hold their shape a little better and they have less rippling. However, they're a little bit firmer and might not feel quite as natural. The more responsive implants, um, are a little bit softer, but they will ripple more. Um, and often those patients need some adequate coverage. So in augmentation patients, if they have, you know, enough breast parenchyma to have good coverage or in reconstruction patients, maybe if they're under the muscle, but more often than not, we'll use a cohesive style implant or reconstruction patient. And sometimes there's an option in between based on the, the implant company you're using. All right, Rosie, three factors <laughs> of the size of the implant. Yeah. When you're picking your implant, you got to think about these three things. So first is projection. So that's the distance from the chest wall that it's going to project you. Mm -hmm. The second is the base width. And so you want to match your um, base width of your implant to the base width of the breast. And that requires measurement usually. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last thing is the volume. And so generally, um, so these like three factors yeah. are interconnected, right? So you have projection, base width, and volume, and some implants will get even more specific and they'll have some variability maybe in their height, like mm -hmm. for a tissue expander that you're picking, um, or if you have an anatomic implant, however, most of the round implants, you know, the base width is going to be the same as the height. Mm -hmm. So you can adjust two, but not three. So the projection, the base width, and the volume, these measurements are all interconnected. So you can decide with the patient, which one of those factors you want to prioritize or which two factors you mm -hmm. want to prioritize. And then the third, you can't control. Um, and different surgeons sort of have different perspectives about, about what they use um, to sort of drive the initial decision-making for the implant selection. All right. So that's a lot about the type of implant. So things that are adjustable is the surface the texturing or smooth surface, the shape, if it's an anatomic teardrop shape or if it's round, 
the fill, if it's filled with silicone or if it's filled with saline, and if it's filled with silicone, how cohesive is that silicone? And then the actual size of the implant, how much it projects, how wide it is, and then what the volume is. And then lastly, there's a couple surgical factors that we can make decisions on um, in terms of technically how we're doing the case. So we can choose where to place the implant um, in an augmentation patient. We would call putting the implant on top of the pec muscle to be subglandular. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a reconstruction patient, we often refer to that as prepectoral. So that's really the same location in an augmentation patient or in both patients, the pectoralis muscle is left on the chest wall, then there's the implant. In a reconstruction patient, the next layer would either be some type of um, you know, acellular dermal matrix that we use or skin. And then in an augmentation patient, they would have their native breast parenchyma and then their skin. Um, reasons we undergo or reasons we elect for a subglandular for augmentation or prepectoral position and recon is this is often associated with less pain since we're not elevating the pectoralis muscle. Patients don't have an animation deformity. What do you want to explain what an animation deformity is? Yeah. So this is something, um, what that happens when you place implants subpectorally. So if you think about it, if you place them underneath the muscle and you're kind of securing them underneath the muscle and you activate your pec muscle, it contracts. And so it's going to contract that implant up with it. Yeah. So sometimes we'll have patients that, um, you know, especially if they were, you know, without clothes on or without a bra on and they were activating their pectoralis muscle, then, then their implant moves. And we call that an animation deformity. And maybe you're in your sports bra doing a workout. Yeah. Doing some bench presses in your implants are jumping. Yeah. (laughs) Um, placing the implant on top of the pec muscle is sort of a more anatomic placement. And like you said, it doesn't really impact your pectoralis muscle. It's also a quicker operation. The downsides is that you don't get as much coverage over the top of the implant. So, um, you have the potential for more visibility of that implant ridge. Um, and that could either be for a reconstructive patient or if the patient had um, limited sort of native breast tissue and augmentation. In augmentation patients, we all often talk about the pinch test. Um, so we're evaluating the thickness of their, of their tissue up there to try to ensure that there's sort of a gradual slope to that implant. Um, in augmentation patients, placing the implant in a subglandular position has also been associated with higher capsular contracture rates and potentially more interference with mammograms. Placing the implant below the pec muscle results in less capsular contracture. You have a smoother upper pole, less visible, um, sort of palpable edge of your implant if this is a reconstructive patient or if you don't have a lot of native breast tissue. However, you have the downsides that we talked about. So you could have more pain with placement um, and animation deformity. Um, It could impact your pectoralis muscle. And then it also has the potential to create this separate non-anatomic place um, for the implant and the breast tissue. And then over time, those two um, areas could sort of um, travel distant from each other where you have either the breast tissue become totic while the implant stays in place or um, the implant drops down potentially and, and the breast tissue is up. So just a note for augmentation patients, there's this concept called dual plane. And this just means that we're releasing the pectoralis muscle inferiorly to allow the implant not to be fully under the pectoralis muscle, but just to be partially under the pectoralis muscle. So there's a couple different types of dual plane coverage, but in all of these, we release the inferior aspect of the pec muscle. And then in some of them, we're also going to create a plane between the pectoralis muscle and the breast parenchyma. So there can be a little bit more sliding of the breast tissue and of the pectoralis muscle. 
All right, Rosie. This is a lot of stuff. <laughs> All right. So lastly, we can think a little bit about um, incision placement for these patients. So in a reconstructive patient, typically you're going to be using the mastectomy incision. So a skin sparing mastectomy is often across the chest. A nipple sparing incision could either be along the IMF, it could be periareolar, it could be radial, which means it's just sort of extending away from the nipple, areolar complex. In an augmentation patient, your options are along the IMF, periareolar, in the axilla or in the umbilicus. Silicone implants are typically going to require either a periareolar or an IMF incision since you need that four centimeters to get the implant in. However, um, both the um, axillary and umbilicus can be um, commonly used locations for saline implants since you can roll up the implant and insert it from afar and then inflate it. Um, you want to think here with your incision placement about access, about visualization, where you have control of the pocket. Um, and if you're doing a revision surgery and you want to do um, a lot of work on the breast pocket, then you probably want to be like periodontal or IMF. Um, you're also thinking about potential for infection. The ducts of the nipple areolar complex are thought to have some potential for contamination. So there have been shown to be lower rates of capsular contracture if you take an IMF approach since you're not as close to the nipple areolar complex. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're also thinking about the location of the scar, how visible and noticeable this is for patients. All right, is this everything you wanted to learn and more about I, breast reconstruction and implants? So much. This is so much. Do you want to talk a little bit about the complications that we can run into here with implant reconstruction? Yeah. yeah. I think so that's really important. Get some questions about this, specifically about capsular contracture, because that's the thing that is probably most common for besides infection. Um, so let's talk complications. So there's rupture of these implants. Like we talked about silicone rupture is harder to identify than saline rupture. Yeah. So often uh, these patients are like getting imaging and stuff mm -hmm. and rupture rates are about 1% per year for implants. That's like a little bit of a rough approximation, but just like a full disclosure on the rates of complications and implants. It's a little challenging. A lot of the big studies are, are done by the implant companies. They have variable different amounts of, you know, reporting and things like that, but roughly 1% per year is a good estimation for rupture rate. Mm -hmm. And they'll call that the Linguini sign. If you see a um, silicone rupture on it, MRI. Oh, on your MRI. Mm -hmm. I thought that was funny. And then next is capsular contracture. So that happens around five to 15% of people by 10 years. And then um, I think it's hundred percent of people by like 23 years is the study that I saw. Not surprised. No. And um, as we kind of talked a little bit about, you're going to get higher rates of capsular contracture for augmentation patients on the subglandular plane for non-textured implants and for any of the incisions outside of the IMF. Mm -hmm. And there's different grades of capsular contracture as well. So grade one, the breast looks and feels normal. Um, grade two, you have palpable changes. Um, grade three capsular contracture, you have palpable and visible changes. And then grade four, you have palpable, visible, and painful changes. Yeah. I always have a hard time remembering the Baker classification for capsular contracture. I don't know about everyone else. I know there's four grades and I just start from the back and work myself up. Mm -hmm. I know that type four is painful, visible, and palpable. And then I just slowly work it back. So grade three, visible, grade two, palpable, and then one is normal. Mm -hmm. I guess it's okay for me to admit that I still struggle with remembering that. Every time I, say I, patient. <laughs> I say looks normal, looks and or looks and feels normal. And then but looks normal, feels hard, looks funny, feels hard. There you go. And looks that funny, feels hard. Awesome. And the re 
rate for patients is about like 30% at seven years in primary augmentation patients. And reasons are going to be implant removal, capsular contracture, patients wanting a, a bigger size, having a rupture, hematoma serum infection. Um, and then last thing is we already talked about, we talked about monitoring and imaging. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to monitor silicone reconstructive patients for rupture, for capsular contracture. Um, you want to also, um, be monitoring, um, your breast cancer patients. Mm-hmm. And for BIALCL specifically, that's only associated with the textured implants. Like we talked about that will present on monitoring, like with a large, periprosthetic seroma or fluid collection. Yeah. And that's often patients are going to come back one to 10 years after the placement of their texture implant is going to be the most common. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. Well, I feel like that was really comprehensive. I think so. It at least will help you kind of get oriented in the OR and, and know why we might be picking different options. And then also figure out when you're talking to people, even friends and family who come to you with questions, you can help them figure out uh, how to navigate a little yeah. bit. Awesome. And again, as we mentioned, like this is not meant to be um, exhaustive. There are so many topics that can be from here. So hopefully this just gives you a good framework to start with. Yeah. Thanks, Rosie. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today, guys. Visit theresidentreview.com for episodes, outlining resources and more. And then um, rate, review, share us with your friends so we can all know what the heck we're talking about when it comes to breast reconstruction. (laughs) Love it. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.